Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, spending his time in the great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, where the weather is always perfect. Right, Ron? Well, it is the day, my man. <laughs> Pretty beautiful out there today, by golly. You know, 72 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. Uh, trees beginning to have some blooms on them, man. It's like, whoa, I think they're jumping ahead of themselves. No, I can't. I can't believe that we're not going to get another freeze, but uh, you can't ever tell. Well, the ground, the groundhog said we would for six more weeks at least, and then then my granny used to say, uh, "It's going to get cold one more time before Easter." I don't know how she knew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somehow well, guess, she did. Uh, did. Did your granny live down there, man? In, yes, she, uh, yes, in, she in did. Alabama, yes, she did. Yes, she did. Right here. Oh well. Well, she lived up here. She'd probably be right for sure, man. <laughs> no doubt. Hey, Ron, I got to tell you, the Studcast have just finished the first two months of 1979, and to me, I think that is the we're in the sweet spot of everything going on. I think your southeastern wrestling history happening every week now makes this the most interesting year so far in the more than five years you've been doing this. Each week now, I can't wait to see the title of the next one. Now, this one, this studcast, number 289, kind of has me a little bit a little bit concerned. It's called Disaster Looms, March 1979. So what exactly does that mean, Stud? Well, and it means things uh, were beginning to happen. For the first time in both territories, maybe, the, you know, that it started to cause us to lose that forward momentum, man, I used to always talk about, man, having that momentum was critical. And we'd, uh, you know, we had the momentum going in Knoxville for a few years, about basically the last four years. Uh, and now in the Gulf Coast, uh, we basically had the momentum going since the day we opened business there in uh, March, almost exactly a year ago from where we are now, March the 3rd uh, in early March of 1978. So, uh, you know, the, I was a little, uh, you know, concerned about it, and uh, that might, I got a little description of it. It's kind of crazy, I guess, you know. I don't know if anybody would put it this way, but, uh, you know, momentum, man, uh, it's kind of a strange deal, and uh, you don't want to lose it uh, and in the wrestling business. I describe it as kind of having a giant ball that's just sitting on the side of a hill, and if you give it a push and it starts moving, Uh-oh. as long as you push it, <laughs> It's going to move forward up the hill. And then if you stop pushing it, you're going to lose that momentum. And, uh, and if, if it only, and then if it only stops, uh, you're lucky, you know, and if you ain't lucky, it's going to fall and it's going to fail and it's going to go forward again. And then it can start rolling backward down the hill, man. So that's, uh, you know, kind of where we were, <laughs> I think felt like that in March of 1979, hmm. the ball really had stopped moving forward. And then we're starting to roll backward for the first time. And I had a good booker, Southeastern Gulf Coast, my brother, uh, who was now already gone to another territory. A lot of things were bad were happening and worse. 
he was being followed by some extremely good talent, man. Far too many of them and far too fast. And uh, and then the ball had, you know, there in that down there in the south in the Gulf Coast, the ball had kind of stopped there and was about to start rolling backward. I felt like. And then I had a Booker in southeastern Knoxville that not only quit rolling the ball forward, but he was starting to let it roll backwards on purpose. <laughs> I had a bad <laughs> situation there for sure. So that's why I call this Studcast Disaster Looms, March 1979. Biggest problem was I had so many good decisions. I had made a lot of good decisions my first four years as an owner. And uh, I was still only 31 years old at this point. So I took for granted that things would kind of continue as they had. And I didn't see the ball stop moving until it stopped. And uh, then it started rolling backwards, man. And uh, it was starting to roll right over top of me, man. Okay, so to me, that's a great description of being unprepared, right? Well, man, uh, that's being polite of you, Dave. <laughs> okay. My right. problem was simple, man. I was young and dumb. Hmm. And I thought I was bulletproof until my business rolled over me, man. Travis Tritt had a song, 10 Feet Tall and Bulletproof. So is that who you thought you were? Well, I'm darn near 10 <laughs> feet tall. <laughs> All right. What a great way to start this one. So where do we ride first today? How do we get this thing on the trail? Well, you know, the old saying, Dave, hindsight is twenty twenty, And uh, today we're going to use that hindsight to see the disaster that was looming in 1979. We're going to ride first in the southeastern Knoxville. We're going to take a good close look at the first card booked in the Knoxville Coliseum by Bob Roop in the month of March 1979. One that started the ball rolling backward, for sure. Uh, we'll discuss the TV promoting that Knoxville card. We'll talk about the results of that card. And then uh, we'll also give people the attendance. And then we're going to ride south into the Gulf Coast Territory to, to have a look at the Mobile Alabama card that was going to be sending three more top wrestlers to Memphis in the next two weeks. So uh, we'll break down the TV that promoted you know, that card and the results of the card and the attendances. And we'll do the attendances like we normally do at all three of the major markets down there on the Gulf Coast. Uh, we're going to talk about another booker, you know, uh, the great the Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillet, and uh, what he had found out about the new prospect out of Tampa coming to Gulf Coast named Terry Bolia. And uh, he would go on to become Hulk Hogan, one of the biggest stars in the history of the sport. So, you know, then hopefully we're going to have us another learning tree at the end of this one, my man. We got him one on the end last week, and I hope we're going to get to this one, another one this time. Hey, I really hope we can get to the learning tree question, Ron. I can't wait to hear the answer to this one. So who was on that Knoxville Coliseum card Sunday, March 4th, 1979? Well, the first match was Ted Allen versus Ron Wright. George McCrary was facing a new star, Mr. Fuji. It was his second week. Terry Gibbs was up against, boy, the huge son of a gun, 450-pound crusher Blackwell. Uh, there was a return Southeastern tag match for the championship. The champions, Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr., were defending against Ken Lucas and Kevin Sullivan. And the week before, they had wrestled to a 30-minute time limit draw. This time, it was going to be an hour time limit. Uh, we're going to make sure that the time doesn't stop the match. The Southeastern title Russian torture match between the great Malenko and Ronnie Garvin last week had all kinds of interference, man. The great Malenko took the title from Garvin because of it. And this is going to be a return match, but it's going to be inside the cage. Okay, so those last two matches seem like really big events. So why did you not like this Bob Roop card as compared to some of the others, Rod? Well, for one thing, man, it only had five matches. And, and that was okay for an event that's going to be in Chilhari uh, Park, small building. But five events was never something that I wanted to see in a Coliseum show. And, and if you look at the first three matches of that card, only two of the six wrestlers in those three matches were main event stars, Crusher Blackwell and Ron Wright. So uh, the third match on this card was Terry Gibbs versus Blackwell. Well, the third match on the last card, which was in Joe Park, was Bob Armstrong and Dick Slater 
versus the invader, which is Bob Orton Jr. under the mask, and Crusher Blackwell. Wow. <laughs> Quite a difference. Oh, no doubt. You're certainly right about that. So why were there fewer matches in the Coliseum than at Chilhowee Park? I had forgotten about that third match last week in the park building with four big stars as compared to the third match this week in the Coliseum with one star. Why do you think that happened? Well, several reasons, Dave. Uh, Bob Armstrong was not on it mm -hmm. because he was working down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory uh, last week. And uh, to be honest, he's not a wasn't a big fan of Bob Roop's booking. Uh, he just didn't get along with Bob Roop. Uh, and uh, I found out that, that uh, the hard way that uh, he wasn't the only one. And he and I talked about it. And, uh, and we basically agreed that uh, he shouldn't go back to the Gulf Coast uh, full-time right now since he had just been there for a year. And they couldn't work on top down there without having to get beat some. And uh, that might potentially kill his drawing power down there. He was a huge star there. Didn't want to hurt him there. And, uh, and he said, you know, Ron, I'd like to go home and I'd like to work the Georgia Territory where I can be with my family. I've been on the road down there in Pensacola for a year. And, uh, and I agree that was the best spot for him to go under the circumstances. And, uh, and he gave his notice to Bob Roop. Uh, and, uh, and I thought it was the best thing to do. Hmm. I didn't really like the, I didn't really think about it, Dave, until later I realized that there I was, I was home and I wasn't even booked on that card. And uh, he could have definitely helped at the box office by just throwing me on the card. I was go I would have gladly worked it. And uh, when the disappointment of this card really hit me, though, was when I went out of the dressing room to get a look at the crowd. It was the smallest house I had seen in the Coliseum in two years. So you ask why it happened. Well, maybe it was part of Roop's plan right then to start making his move to slowly take over the territory mm. by intentionally booking weak cards and lowering the box office receipts. Mm. That was going to cut the wrestlers' payoffs. And, uh, and he even brought up that excuse two months later when he asked me to have a meeting with him. And uh, at that meeting, he claimed somebody in the company was stealing from the box office receipts and that the real gates were larger than, than uh, we claimed it was. And the wrestlers' payoffs were less than what they should have been. Well, now I can kind of see why you call this studcast Disaster Looms, March 1979. So what about the TV show promoting this small five-match card in the Coliseum? Well, it opened with a tight shot of Les running down the TV cart, and then it widened to a shot of a patched-up great Malenko sitting next to him. Uh, Malenko had a cigar in his mouth. He had a huge grin on his face, and he had the southeastern belt in front of him. And uh, behind him, across the uh, back of the set, uh, was that huge still shot that we normally put there. This one had Ronnie Garvin, uh, really a bloody mess, man. He was hanging in the corner of the ring, uh, by a steel chain around his throat, hung under the turnbuckle. Uh, there was a towel laying on the mat in front of him, and the referee was handing Malenko the belt. So the Russian, uh, you know, told us that, the, that he loved the shot. <laughs> you know, uh, Malenko said, oh, what a great shot. That's a great photo. And he said, you know, that says everything about the match. You know, everything that needs to be said. And he got up and he... He started to walk off. So Les asked him, said, wait, wait, come back here and have a seat. And he goes, uh, the, then he asked the director to back up the tape and to show everybody what had happened, what actually happened before that still shot. And uh, Malenko, he'd sat back down by this point, but as soon as he found out he's going to back that thing up, he got really mad. And he said, there's no need for that. You know, he said, that photo said everything that need be said about that match, you know. So he got up and just stormed off the set. Uh, left Les sitting there by himself. Les was calling him back, but he just he just went on, ignored him. So then Les told the fans that he, that they were going to get to see the video anyway. He says, now that, uh, you know, he's left me kind of high and dry here at the beginning of the show, he goes, 
I'm going to show it on the personality profile. And he said, I'm going to now invite Ronnie Garvin to watch it with me <laughs> so the fans can find out Ronnie's thoughts on what happened. You know, he said, you knew how to see this. So uh, that started to show off with a big pop the studio. Much rather hear Garvin talk about it than Malenko anyway. So the audience then really, uh, you know, it never stopped their applause. Uh, out came Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas uh, for the first match. And uh, they got a big win, and both of their opponents uh, put their opponents away. Both of them used sleeper holes. I think uh, Lucas had taught, had taught uh, Kevin uh, how to use that hole properly because uh, Lucas was always great with that sleeper. And then Blackwell, Bob Roop, and the invader, Bob Orton Jr., that's Bob Orton Jr. wearing a mask, came to the set, and they watched Blackwell and the invader get counted out of the ring the Sunday before, just standing down there on the floor, arguing with each other, not paying attention to the referee. And Bob Armstrong and Dick Slater are standing in the ring watching them. And the referee counted them out to 10, raised Bob Roop, and raised them in a Slater and Armstrong's hand. And uh, boy, both Roop and the invader, man, they got in Blackwell's face, as had been the case for quite a few weeks here at this point, about him causing them to lose. And then they sent him to the ring, and they told him well, as they were sending him to the ring that you need to show them how mean you can be, man, and you need to hurt somebody. So uh, so he was facing Ted Allen, who was, uh, you know, had been there for quite a few, quite a few weeks, and uh, he was a pretty, pretty uh, likable guy, Ted Allen. Uh, he was the guy that trained Arn Anderson, as a matter of fact, and uh, Ted was – Poor Ted, in this case, was wrestling against Blackwell. But when Blackwell went to the ring, he did exactly opposite of what they told him to do. He just showed everybody how much wrestling skills he had for a man of his size. And at one point, he leapfrogged Ted Allen, who ran underneath his legs, and <laughs> drop-kicked him with both feet in the face. 450 pounds. Wow. <laughs> The guy can do anything. And at the end of the match, uh, Ted uh, tried to leapfrog over Blackwell. Now, Blackwell's four feet wide, you know. I mean, that wasn't a good idea for Ted. And when he came down, he kind of hit on his left knee, and his knee went out. So uh, Alan, Alan took a bump, and he lay there, and he was, he was hurt, and he couldn't get up. But uh, Blackwell, you know, the referee, uh, you know, was uh, going to give Blackwell the uh, the victory, you know, just, uh, you know, hey, uh, he can't get up. And Blackwell refused to let the ref give him a victory. <laughs> so then, then, you know, an invader and Roop are still, you know, uh, right up there at the set with Les, and they're watching all this, and they went to the straight to the ring, got right in the ring into Blackwell's face. You mean, <laughs> you know, they had made a fool He'd made a fool of them, what they had told him to do. And they demanded him that he finish Allen off, you know. He was laying there still holding his leg. He said, get him, get him, finish him off, you know. And uh, he told them no. And uh, he got a small applause from the fans when he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and then he went over and he raised Ted Allen's hand. And he left the ring. Now he got a big applause. <laughs> so both Roop and the Invader, they went after him, man. They were screaming at him all the way back to the dressing room. All right, so I'm beginning to think the fans were starting to feel a little something for Crusher Blackwell. I would have chilled, cheered for him, too, most likely. I, I think I probably would have. So tell us about the Ronnie Garvin profile and the Russian torture match video. Well, this profile was going to be a lot more than just watching a video of Ronnie Garvin losing his southeastern belt. Uh, Ronnie has beat up as if he he looked like he'd been in a car wreck. I mean, he was really pretty beat up from that from that uh, Russian torture match, and uh, so uh, he was about to describe what was happening in the video, and and the, and then he kind of said to Les, you know, this 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 tells a story of why Malenko refused to even watch it at the opening of the show. He said, no wonder he didn't want to talk about it. It's going to show exactly how he stole the championship belt. 
And uh, so it opened up with Garvin, bloody, and just this, almost at the same place that it was on the big screen behind him when they opened the show. There he was, bloody and hanging by the steel chain in, the, in one of the ring corners. And uh, he was refusing to give up. It was obvious the referees asked him, do you want to give up? And, uh, and he, uh, you know, Ronnie was describing what happened. And he says, no, I'm telling him no. And then uh, Bob Orton Jr., who was Malenko's second at ringside, he was able to stop the match uh, anytime he wanted to by simply throwing a towel into the ring. That's You either gave up, and if the guy didn't give up, you second could throw in the towel and give up for you, basically. And uh, so uh, Orton didn't have any problem. Malenko was winning this match. Garvin's hung in by the chain in the corner. And, um, and in his corner, Dick Slater was his second at ringside. He also had a towel, and obviously it was for the same reason. And then when Garvin wouldn't give up, Orton kind of drew the referee and Slater's attention. And uh, when he did, um, Bob Roop, uh, who had absolutely no reason to be anywhere and down on the floor where this match was going on, he attacked Slater from behind. The referee is... Uh, being uh, pulled away by Orton, he don't see any of this. So, and uh, Roop attacked Slater from behind. He gave him a shoulder breaker out there on the concrete. And uh, then he threw Slater's uh, towel. When he headed back to the dressing room, he saw Slater's towel laying on the floor, and he threw it in the ring uh, on his way back to the dressing room. And, uh, you know, uh, did all this without being seen by the referee. So when the referee turned around uh, from Orton, he saw the towel with Slater, but there was no Slater because Slater's laying out there on the floor. He'd been shoulder, he had a shoulder breaker, which is a very dangerous move done to him. And uh, he wasn't able to, to, to get up at this point. And then, uh, so uh, the referee kind of assumed that Slater threw the towel in and, uh, and he went to the dressing room. So the referee stopped the match, uh, Garvin is still in the corner, refusing to give up and screaming, no, 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 I don't give up. And he awarded Malenko the belt. So Garvin was furious, man, at this point, you know. Uh, but the video wasn't over. Then he watched as the medics came into the building. They, they always had medics taking care of wrestlers because guys would get hurt uh, quite often. And the medics uh, had to come and take Dick Slater. They put him on a stretcher. He actually went to the hospital. And then Garvin screamed for the director to get out of the video. Uh, he was, he was, uh, and then he asked Les why it seemed like Malenko, Orton, and Roop were always watching each other's back. And then he asked her, why now all of a sudden do they have this huge and extremely talented, you know, everybody it wasn't just me that was impressed by what he did. He said, now they've got this huge, extremely talented Crusher Blackwell with him. And he goes, uh, he's a wrestler, you know, that don't seem to want to be with him. What's this all about? Basically, you know, he said they're constantly, constantly humiliating him, screaming at him, slapping him around. And every city that we go wrestle in, they do the same thing to him. So he asked Les straight up. He said, why is this happening? And what the heck is going on here? You know, and then he says, you, you saw the last TV match where he, he raised the, his <laughs> opponent's hand. And he goes, you know, he says, and, and then they came and got on him again. He says, it's a perfect example of what Blackwell is really all about, you know. <laughs> and he says, uh, and then he says to Les, he goes, why are you, Les, uh, when are you going to, have Crusher Blackwell on one of these profiles and ask him what the hell is going on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, well, that's a great personality profile right there. He was right. What, what did Les say? Well, what could he say? You know, so he, he promised Garvin. He goes, you know, geez, you're right, Ronnie. Because, uh, in fact, I'm going to ask him to be on next week's profile. He says, I want to find out, just like you, what, what's going on here, right? Yeah. You know, and uh, so the, the profile got a lot more a lot more heat on the three guys Ronnie had talked about. So uh, then, then, you know, then, then, then they could have got on themselves. So they were the ones that finished the show, basically. Uh, those three guys, those three wrestlers, they, had, they were in the last two matches. They had all the belts now. 
Malenko had the Southeastern title, and uh, Roop and Bob Orton Jr. had the tag team championship belts. So they had the last two matches in the show. And uh, so they destroyed, uh, you know, three unlucky young wrestlers, man, uh, in the, at the end of the program. So less than the last interview, he asked all three of those guys about what was going on with Crusher Blackwell. He couldn't wait to the personality profile the next week, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and he, he asked them, he said, uh, I want to talk to him in the personality profile next week. Oh, and, oh. Uh, so, you know, he was up front with all three of those guys and then they refused to answer him about anything that had to do with Blackwell. Uh-huh. And they, and they threatened Ronnie Garvin that if he continued to push this thing, you know, <laughs> like he's doing today, that, uh, he's going to pay the price. He's going to pay the price. Yeah, I bet that scared Garvin. All right, this is really getting good, Stud. So I've never seen or heard an angle similar to this. I can't wait to find out what's going to happen myself on this whole thing. So what about the results of the matches back in the Coliseum on the following day? Well, remember now, there was only five matches, which I was really uh, upset about that. Uh, Ron Wright beat a, a game, but still hobbling uh, Ted Allen. Ted Allen had guts enough to come the next day and wrestle Ron Wright, uh, and he still was had a left knee that was bad, and you could tell it, and he was hurt. And, uh, and, and, and in fact, Ron Wright, being the natural heel he was, he took the first thing he did, and the only thing he did the entire match was stomp and, and twist and, and do everything he could to, to Ted's <laughs> Of injured leg, the entire match, <laughs> mm-hmm. until Ted gave up. Ron Wright then, uh, you know, strutted around the ring like he'd really done something big time. Uh, then the new Japanese star, Mr. F- Mr. Stu- Fuji, uh, you know, his stock kept rising, man. This was his second win in a row in Knoxville. He beat George McCrary, and he did it in style. Uh, guy's got a future, man, for us. Uh, the last man of the hour on the TV from the day before, Crusher Blackwell, didn't break any rules in his match, and he got himself a great win over a very good Terry Gibbs, who was a good wrestler, man. And uh, and and it was what I would have called a classic babyface match. In fact, after it was over, uh, he was met at ringside. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Blackwell by Malenko, Orton, and Roop, and they followed him all the way to the dressing room, man, shouting insults at him and shoving him around because of the way he had wrestled that match. They didn't like it. Uh, so uh, then the Southeastern tag belts uh, were on the line in the 60-minute time limit match. Uh, that They had a 30-minute time limit draw the last week. Champions Bob Root and Bob Orton Jr. defending against Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas and uh, Orton and Jr. I mean, Orton and Root won that match. They beat Ken Lucas in, in the middle of the ring, which didn't happen very often. Uh, Ronnie Garvin in the last match regained his Southeastern title from the great Malenko inside the steel cage. And this time there was no outside interference from anybody at all for a change. Wow. Okay. How about attendance for that big event? Well, it was the first time, man, I had mentioned it earlier. It was the first time in a long time I'd seen a cage match in Knoxville that drew less than 5,000 fans. Uh, this Coliseum show did less than the Chilhowee Park card from the week before. Mm. It only had 4,000 fans, man. Wow. Big disappointment. Okay. I remember now you saying earlier that you had looked at the crowd that night and it appeared to be the smallest in the Coliseum in at least a couple of years. All right, but I tell you what, it's a great first half that we just knocked into and knocked out stud. So again, I see why you called this one disaster looms March, 1979. This is of course, episode number 289. So I tell you what, let's take our break here. We're at the halfway point. When we come back, I can't wait to hear how things go, how things go down, down South in the Gulf coast territory that is coming up when this stud cast continues right here. 
All right, Studcast fans on the break. Ron's last Ask the Stud one and two question and answer shows are now available on Southeastern Rewind YouTube only. They're getting rave reviews with some of the best questions he's ever had from fans all over the world. If you haven't heard one of these shows yet, they're an old school wrestling fan's dream and education in every one. If you'd like to get in on the fun and ask a question, look for the Stud's question and answer post on his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, and his Ron Fuller Welch Twitter page, too. Submit your question there and wait for the stud to answer. Subscribe now. Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. Episode number 289 is called Disaster Looms, March 1979. All right, stud, let's get back into it. Where do we ride to now? Well, we're going to Mobile, Alabama, man, on a Wednesday night. March the 7th, 1979, uh, going to the Expo Hall, which is the smaller building there. And the first match on the card there is going to be two more newcomers. Um, Louis Tillette's doing a good job, man. He is uh, he's, he's bringing people in. Uh, first of those two newcomers was a pretty good hand around the country. Uh, he, had, he had been to a lot of territories. His name was Armand Hussein. And he was going up against a future WWE Hall of Famer, trained by my grandfather's brother, Herb Welch. Uh, he's going to be wrestling against WWE's Honky Tonk Man. But at this point, he's just punk rock Wayne Ferris, man. <laughs> he's, he's not, he's a long <laughs> way from being the Honky Tonk Man mm-hmm. yet. But uh, he's making his Southeastern debut. Uh, and uh, wow. He got a big future ahead of him. <laughs> Terry Latham and Ricky Fields, they were returning to take on Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan in a one-hour time limit match. They had had a 30-minute time limit draw the week before against those two guys in Mobile. Uh, Herb Calvert was meeting the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, under the mask in his second week in the territory, Steinborns. And for the Southeastern title champion, David Schultz, was going up against the great Bob Armstrong, man, who uh, was working down in the Southern Territory. And one of his last times down there, uh, he was going to be going to work in the Georgia Territory for a while. The main event was in a steel cage for the Southeastern Tag Belts this time uh, in a very unusual match where the losing team would – Normally, you know, in the in these matches, tag matches, and there was the loser leave, the person that lost the fall lift. But this one is very different. It's an unusual one where the losing team, both guys would have to leave the territory. Oh. So uh, champions Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin were going to go up against Don Carson, the assassin. They were managed by Billy Spears. So that's a pretty good card right there, filled with some really talented wrestlers from both the past and the future. So how about the TV show? What kind of TV talent did this card uh, showcase? Well, man, it was kind of identical to the card who we just announced. You know, it had both young guys and it had older stars, too. Uh, newcomers, uh, Punk Rock Ferris and the Gladiator, they both got wins. And also Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Billy Spears, uh, got a win and Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler. So, uh, you know, they got a little bit of everything, got young guys, got the older guys. Uh, so that TV opened up with Southeastern Tag Champions Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, and they watched a video with Charlie Platt from the week before. And the video uh, made a great case, man, for, for having a cage match because of the outside interference it's going to take place in the video, uh, and that then the outside interference comes from the two guys that are in the main event, the match after them. They both have, end up getting involved, and it showed Billy Spears getting involved after his team had lost a Texas death match to Golden and Austin. Spears pulled something out, uh, and uh, they held Jimmy, and he popped him with it, and he split his eye pretty good, enough for eight stitches. You got him good enough to cut him for eight stitches worth. And uh, so uh, Jimmy had a big bandage over his left eye. And uh, it was proof enough that, uh, you know, he had he had some uh, some uh, bona fide stitches underneath that showed David Schultz then coming to the ring long before the bell rang for his his uh, 
main event match for the Southeastern belt, the loser leave match. But he came down to the ring way early before the other guys even left. And, uh, and when he got there, he attacked Norvell Austin. So that left Spears and Carson the assassin beating, be really beating down a bloody Jimmy Golden at this point. And then Tony Charles standing back there, wasn't ready to go to the ring yet. Was supposed to be an intermission. He went to the ring to help Golden and Austin naturally. So Jimmy and Norvell kind of asked Charlie to stop the tape. He said, you know, uh, then they made their case, man, for a do or die into Billy Spears and his team. They said they've been thinking about a way to get rid of Billy Spears and his team all in one match. And then that's where they proposed this loser leave tag match, something with a new twist. Uh, usually the man that lost left, but this time they wanted it to be something that had never been done before. This time they wanted the losing team, both of the men to be gone. And they also wanted to match in a steel cage. So while wow, studio popped at that, you know, wow, that's a pretty darn good match right there. So then they added that the only reason they wanted both losers to leave and the, and the real <laughs> beauty of the idea was because if Spears lost his whole team, he'd automatically be gone too. He got nobody to manage. So then they got another pop crowd says, you know, they, they all hated Billy Spears. He had tremendous heat. So Charlie told them that the Spears teams was going to be in the first match of the show coming up right after they got up from watching the video. And he said, I'll try to get Spears to come to the set here with me uh, and while the match is going on and see if he'll agree to giving you guys this match that you're asking for. So then the bell rang, uh, Don Carson, the assassin, came to the ring, followed by Billy Spears. Uh, they all got in the ring. Then uh, Platt sent the announcer to get Spears to join him at the set uh, when the match started, and Billy came. And uh, and then the match with uh, Golden Nelson and, 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 and talk, was, uh, uh, talk to Charlie was presented to him. And, uh, you know, Billy came, and, uh, you know, he got to hear the story of what had happened. And, uh, you know, so he, he basically uh, – he, he leapt at the idea, man. Uh, once he, he explained it to him, the loser of this match wanted in a cage, and uh, the loser, they want both people to leave. Uh, that team will be gone. So uh, Spears leaped at it, man. Like a dog on a bone, man. He was like, heck, yeah, <laughs> I love this. Hell, I'll get them both gone. So the first interview show had both teams on it, agreeing to the cage match. And uh, one entire team was going to be eliminated from the territory the next week. Then Punk Rock, Punk Rock Wayne Ferris, man, got his first ever Southeastern win in the second match. And his, up, and his upcoming opponent, Armand Hussein, joined Charlie at the set. He kind of introduced himself. Uh, I think he had worked that territory when it was Gulf Coast before. So a lot of people knew him, but he would have been gone for a long time. And uh, so he kind of introduced himself. He talked about what Punk Rock was doing in the ring. And uh, Punk Rock looked pretty good. Wayne looked really good, man. I mean, uh, you know, Wayne, uh, Wayne was going to really improve dramatically in this, this, this year here in Southeast. David Schultz was on the profile with Charlie. And they watched his uh, loser leave win over Tony Charles. Tony Charles was gone to Memphis, another guy gone to Memphis. And then they, they watched an interview from Bob Armstrong. And in the interview, Bob told everybody he was returning to get his Southeastern belt back, that he was the first guy to win it, and he was going to get it back again. And uh, naturally, Schultz sat there and watched the interview, but boy, he had different ideas. And, you know, and he wasn't very flattering to old Bob. You know, he said, you know, that old man – his, his better days are long gone, you know. He's whooped a lot of people, but, you know, he's an old dog now, and he's going to get a whooping that I'm going to give him. And he said, I'm going to prove it, that, uh, and I'm going to beat my first really big-name challenger as a champion here, and I'm going to do it this week. I'm going to beat that old dog, Bob Armstrong. So fans didn't like that much. It was a live one. Uh, the interview and that uh, personality profile. In the third match, Gladiator, Dick Steinborn got his second 
really convincing win in a row on TV. As, and his opponent for the next week, Herb Calvert, watched from the set with Les, and uh, he kind of talked about and critiqued the masked man's match. You know, uh, uh, Calvert was Calvert was a heck of a wrestler, and uh, and uh, he was still wrestling these matches against people in the crowd. But I'll tell you what, Dave, he was whipping them so fast <laughs> and so convincingly, he wasn't getting near the number of challenges. That he was when he started. <laughs> He's having more difficult time finding somebody to wrestle. <laughs> I can imagine. Wow. So, last match was Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan uh, getting their second straight TV win in a row, uh, while Ricky Fields and Terry Latham this time joined Charlie to set. Charlie had somebody to set with him for the entire show. They talked about their upcoming 60 minute time limit match the following week. Uh, against the guys who were wrestling in the ring and uh, that they had a 30-minute time limit the week before, and they were ready. Uh, they were young, and look at the old guys out there, you know, and you had they were talking about Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan, and, mm. wow, it was kind of pretty pretty true what they were saying, so uh, they were prepared for it. All right, cool. So, all right, if I'm keeping up with it properly, that TV had something match-wise or interview wise from every wrestler on the card the following week. So I don't think that that's ever happened before or on any TV show to my knowledge. Well, you know, that is very unusual, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it, there was a reason for it. Uh, you know, Louis to it wasn't his first rodeo man as a booker and he knew how to put a TV together too. And, uh, so besides having a rocking TV, he was also man out there locating and uh, looking for talent, and he had found himself a very green and totally unknown wrestler waiting in the wings for his first shot at stardom, man. Uh, and uh, he, he he's going to be a big name. All right, so there's so much going on in this studcast, Ryan. That I almost forgot about who are we going to be talking about in just a few minutes. So before we do, what about? What happened in Mobile, Alabama? It was Wednesday, March 7th, 1979. Fill us in on that. Okay. Uh, first match talked about the two guys that had been there, had uh, making their first appearance, basically. Uh, uh, Punk Rock Ferris, uh, future honky-tonk man, got his first Mobile win over Harman Hussein. Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler had a great match. Hard-fought win, man, over Ricky Fields and Terry Latham. The match went beyond 30 minutes. Had it been another 30-minute time limit, it would have been a draw. It went past 30 minutes. A uh, great match. Gladiator and Dick Steinborn, who was Dick Steinborn, handed Herb Calvert his first Southeastern loss. He was the first guy to beat Herb Calvert, uh, professional or amateur. He, uh, But uh, Dick Slater, I mean, Dick Steinborn was a tremendous wrestler. Wow. Uh, David Schultz kept his Southeastern belt. Got his first win yet over Bob Armstrong. This first time he'd ever beaten Bob Armstrong. Uh, and in the cage match for the Southeastern Tag Belts, uh, and both men on the losing team had to leave Southeastern. Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin pulled out a win that set Mobile's Expo Hall on fire. Uh, Bob told me, man, that building <laughs> popped <laughs> big time. Wow. Said it was a great match those guys had. Wow. All right, so how about the attendance for the three major cities that all three had the same card? How'd you do? Well, Montgomery held up basically about 3,200 from the week before. Uh, the week before that had been the Harley Race event, and uh, we did the, the house that fell the last week pretty big, and it and held up in Montgomery, uh, just about the same house as it had been the week before. Dothan dropped about 200 people only to about 3,600. And the mobile fell down to 4,300. Uh, but, uh, you know, that uh, still the 4,300 in mobile was bigger than the Knoxville car, the Knoxville crowd. So, uh, you know, just uh, as a comparison sake, uh, things were not quite as dim in uh, Gulf Coast as it was in Knoxville. Well, it sounds like the, the three cities were almost the same as the week before. So, Ron, mm-hmm. what can you tell us about the discovery of the wrestler 
who would go on to become, some say, the biggest star in the history of the sport. I'm talking about the one and only Hulk. We knew him. We know him as Hulk Hogan. Now, when he began with you, he he just had the nickname Hulk, and he used his real name. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't Hulk Hogan yet, uh, just like a punk rock Wayne Ferris was right. not Honky Tonk Man. Honky Tonk Man, exactly. You know, <laughs> so, uh, and Hulk uh, had not wrestled basically nowhere at this point. So, uh, and I give all the credit for finding the Hulk, man. Uh, uh, goes to uh, the booker, man, Louis Tillet. And as, and as soon as he took the book uh, from my brother Rob in early 1979, uh, he began a talent search across the country. He knew all kinds of people, uh, all t- lots of promoters, uh, and he he had been uh, all around the world wrestling, and uh, so he had connections. And he just asked and just kept looking for something different, somebody that could really pop things. So uh, you know, in the last couple of studcasts, you kind of begin to see these new wrestlers are arriving. And uh, and some of the, you know, as some of these present wrestlers and stars are going to Memphis, uh, he's pretty good at uh, bringing in new people. So Louie had a great relationship with Eddie Graham and my father. And uh, both of those guys were stockholders in the NWA Florida Territory. Uh, and Louie himself had been the booker in that territory on several occasions over the 10-year, 12-year period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he contacted Florida office, man, which was, you know, been my, probably the, my first place to call and ask, you know, and he asked about new guys that were training because they trained them there all the time, you know, and, uh, or anybody that he asked about anybody who had been recently trained in the old snake pit. That's what the building was called, uh, where they did TV there. Uh, then that's where they trained at. And basically I kind of grew up in that snake pit. So I was very familiar with that building. So, uh, and he was told about one guy in particular, uh, Charlie Lay was the guy that sat at the very entrance to the wrestling office, which was in that same building, been there for many years. And he told Louis that there's this big, huge dude that's came, come in here. Uh, he, his name is Terry Bolia. And, uh, and you know, he, he said, uh, he, he's really big, mm-hmm. but he says, but you know, he they intent he and they intentionally discouraged him on purpose huh. because uh, some of the trainers didn't believe he had the proper attitude. So, what do you evidently? Yeah, go ahead. What do you, what, what do you mean by discouraged him? What What do you mean? <laughs> well, uh, so <clears throat> well, I tell you, here old Matt said he'd been training guys that that had grown up in that area, friends of Mike Graham that went to school with Mike that turned out to be great wrestlers. Uh, hero Matt Suter had, Matt Suter had trained Dick Slater. He'd trained Steve Kern. He trained Dennis McCord, who's going to be the future Austin Idol. That's just to name a few other guys that he trained in the snake pit. Well, he's the one that in discouraged, let's call it, uh, uh, Hulk, the future Hulk, uh, from continuing to be trained. And he did it mm-hmm. by breaking his leg on purpose. Whoa. Whoa. Are you serious? But why? Why would he do that? Uh, because he didn't think Terry was as committed as he should be to learning to be a wrestler. And, uh, you know, he, he, he felt like uh, that he wasn't going to be a benefit to the business. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he didn't deserve to be in the business. No. Did they uh, feel like he was dis- disrespecting the sport, sort of? Or? Well, in, in a way, that's a, that that's a good that's a good way of putting it. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and when that was the assessment for trainees, you know, uh, they got discouraged. You know, <laughs> so I give you an example, man. My grandfather, Roy Welch, uh, he went to train with the original Dutch Mantel, and uh, Dutch Mantel broke his wrist. And when his wrist got well, he went back months later and he broke his ribs the second time to discourage him. Wow. So it was common practice to discourage or eliminate professional potential wrestlers before you ever put them in the ring. It was to protect the business. 
You weren't going to put a guy in the ring that didn't really want it and, uh, and was going to go out there and talk to people about it in the wrong way. And uh, so that Hulk Hogan got discouraged right away by a hero, Matt Suda. Matt Suda broke his leg. Wow. So you know, we never, I never really think about it that way. This is really fascinating stuff, Stud. Stud. I hate to cut it off here, but I know this is just the beginning of the Hulk story. And we've got a great learning tree question from Ron, today, Ron, from, from Albert Downing. He's in Portland, Oregon. And so he says, Here's what he has to say. He says, quote, I love your stud cast and what you do. My question is, given what was happening in your southeastern Gulf Coast territory in 1979 in relation to the Memphis territory and their promoter and part owner, Jerry Jarrett, taking your booker and many of your wrestlers to save his own territory, what was your relationship with him? <laughs> Oh, uh, well, now I can see why you're so gung-ho, Dave, to get this question in today, you know. <laughs> A little bit. This ain't an easy one to answer here, man. I mean, you know, uh, so, uh, geez, I got to give us a little bit of thought here, you know. There, there, was a, there was so much going on between Jerry, Jared, and I. Uh, and at the time, the time that I knew him and did business with him, uh, and and I've hardly ever spoken of it, you know. I and I, I've never talked about it much. And and I'm not sure where to begin with this answer. But but uh, first of all, for those that don't know it out there, Jerry recently passed away, man. Uh, and and I pray for him and his family, especially his son Jeff, who spent a great deal of time putting up with my brother Robert, hmm. known as Tennessee Lee, just manager, man, while he. While he was working in WWE, so yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, Jeff has my condolences for more than just his dad. Kind of for having to deal with my brother sometimes too. <laughs> I don't know how that is. <laughs> so I know to most people now the when 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 I think about this 1979 situation with Jerry, uh, most people will probably uh, people on the outside of the business man. Uh, it probably seems to be pretty cut and dried. You know what I should have done, and and I'm sure many of them are probably thinking, you know, well, well, why would I, why would I do anything but get on an airplane in 1979, fly to Memphis, and confront uh, Jerry Jarrett face to face, man, uh, and put it, put his lights out or something, you know? I mean, uh, and and I can understand that, uh, so. But you got to bear in mind about this situation. My father was his partner, business partner. At this point, my brother is there working for him as his booker. And, and if I was going to do something like that, then I would have I would have probably uh, I would have probably had to do it to my own family members. If, I, if I'm going to be mad at Jerry like that, why wouldn't I not be feeling the same way about my father and my brother? So, uh. So for one thing, uh, I'm not made that way, man. Uh, you know, I, I don't hold grudges. Uh, and I, I've learned that over time. Uh, and I got a little age on me and, and some things I have, I have, I have, uh, I believe God wants us to forgive others and, uh, and, and turn the other cheek, man. And, uh, so, so I have a, story to tell here about my relationship uh, for uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name but I have a story to to uh, tell about what kind of relationship I had with Jerry Jarrett uh, and and this is a story I haven't told to a whole lot of people I can tell you that uh, so maybe this is a good time as any to, to make this unknown uh, you know to make this make this known to everybody uh, and I think it'll change minds about how I handle my relationship with Jerry Jarrett. So uh, I, I'm going to back this up, man. Uh, uh, let's start in the fall of 1974. I left the Florida Territory. I had purchased my first territory in Knoxville, Tennessee. I was young, 26 years old. 
and and I knew nothing about owning a business, and and I especially the fact uh, that when you are starting your business, you almost always need more money in the bank to pay for your losses than your business costs to begin with. So without it, you know, you're you're likely to fail. So uh, so I was I was kind of dumb and stupid, and I found out in the first two months of my operation there as a wrestling owner that I was not only going to not get paid for wrestling every night, like I was accustomed to for my entire career, but I was going to have to take money out of my own pocket to pay the wrestlers. And then I was going to go home night after night broke, you know, and I was on the edge of bankruptcy. I was praying to the good Lord for help. Uh, You know, 26 years old, uh, going broke, uh, got myself in a bad situation. Uh, what am I going to do? On Thanksgiving Day, 1974, I'll never forget it. I got a call from Jerry Jarrett. And I had worked for him on a couple of shows in the past. And, uh, and I'd also heard that his territory was down, as many others were at that time. Uh, so he asked me how I was doing. And I'm pretty sure he knew what I was going through. Because he, he, he was, he was having, he was experiencing some of it right then. And he was young. Uh, we were both young, young men at that point. And uh, so he was going through the same thing I was and uh, trying to figure out how to make wrestling work as an owner, how to make, how to make this happen, you know? So when I told him, you know, uh, how I was doing, <laughs> he asked me if I'd like to come to work for him in Memphis. And he said he had put me on top. Mm. He'd make me his champion. Wow. And since I had my own territory to run, he didn't expect me to be there all week, that he would, uh, he, I could work Memphis only, and I didn't have to work his whole territory. So, you know, that sounded good. And then so I asked him, how much will you pay me? Mm-hmm. Now, this is 1974. Right. And he said, I'll pay you, Ron, $1,000 for every Memphis show. Oh. Plus, plus your plane fare. Wow. Back and forth from Knoxville to Memphis. I could hardly speak, man. Rest of the phone call. I was like, son of a gun, man. So I wrestled my first time for Jerry uh, after this deal had been made. Mm-hmm. Uh, after this conversation on December 2nd, 1974, about two weeks after Thanksgiving, uh, uh, four shows later on December 29th, 1974, I won his version of the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship belt. A lot of different territories had the same championship belts uh, that happened in Florida. I had already won the Florida championship earlier in 1974 when I was still down in Florida. This time I won the Southern Heavyweight Championship, the, the Memphis version of it, basically. So Jerry's territory was really down. Uh, first six or eight shows, and I say we because we were both involved in getting this thing cranked up to making this happen. Uh, and we struggled to get to 4,000 fans. Memphis, mm. big huge city, 11,000 seat building, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then things started to change pretty quickly after that. As, as we entered 1975, uh, I was getting over better every week and I was also getting this rare opportunity to wrestle some of the very best. He not only was paying me big money, but he was also paying big money guys to come in and wrestle me. Uh, I wrestled, wow. Guys like Luthez, Danny Hodge, Dick the Bruiser, the Sheik, the Mongolian Stomper, the Assassin, Jody Hamilton, the original Assassin, Dale Lewis, Tex McKenzie, Rufus R. Jones, Steve Kovac, one of the big Kovac family brothers, Luke Graham, another big name in Beth, Jackie Fargo, Jerry Lawler. Tojo Yamamoto, Bill Dundee. I mean, it was like, wow, it was like a who's who. And um, many of those guys were later on going to work for me in my own companies. You know, uh, 
I was going to create a relationship uh, by being involved in this as well as, as being able to make make really good money. So by the month of April, five months after I took the deal and I started working in Memphis, Jack Briscoe and I sold out the Mid-South Coliseum 11,000 plus seats twice in that month alone, both of them for NWA world title matches. Wow. Wow. It exploded. Business had exploded. Hmm. Uh, I wrestled for Jerry 35 times in 1974, 1975. Uh, during that time, we established his business on solid ground. I mean, it went from 2,000 to 11,000. You know, I mean, it was, it was amazing. And at the same time, uh, he saw me through hard times, man, while I was struggling to get Southeastern wrestling off the ground. Uh, really, really struggling. It was hard, and, and we've been through all this in these studcasts to explain how that how that was, you know. Uh, so, uh, by 1979, now let's jump to where we are now uh, in in our studcast here today. Uh, five years after that run in 1974 and 75, because of our helping each other, I had two territories then. And both of them were on fire, you know. So when the call came to me, man, uh, to support him and and my father's needs, uh, what could I say, man? I, I give Jerry Jarrett a lot of credit for my success. Uh, and along with a lot of other wrestlers he helped. He was a good man. So, uh, Mr. Downing, uh, you know, from Oregon, uh I appreciate your question, and, uh, and I hope I've answered it as well as I can. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, you know, they say God works in mysterious ways, and because of what happened in 1975, Jerry Jarrett will always have a special place in my heart. Hey, Albert, if you don't feel like you just got your answer thoroughly, your question thoroughly answered, uh, it'll it'll never be answered. Wow. I don't know what to say, Ron. It's hard to imagine finding such soft hearts in something as tough as the wrestling business and the way you talk about Jerry Jarrett. So, wow, that's a that's an amazing relationship. And what came from that relationship is, is tremendous. You've really you blown me away with this one, no doubt about it. I don't know how you can keep this run of tremendous podcasts going, but we look forward to finding out, and we can do just that next week hey folks on facebook go to ron fuller welch the tennessee stud like and follow him there to become friends with a living legend on twitter same thing follow him on twitter at ron fuller welch and you get hooked up right there too the youtube channel the youtube channel is southeastern rewind southeastern rewind on youtube simple to find don't miss the exclusive youtube ask the stud shows episodes one and two great question and answer shows and the extremely extremely popular short rides with the stud are all there a new one goes up every other day youtube southeastern rewind is the gateway to classic continental wrestling.com the studs tremendous streaming channel classic continental wrestling.com is where you find everything that is the tennessee stud there are now more than 200 hours 200 hours of classic old school tv shows from gulf coast to southeastern to continental to usa wrestling all in the order in which they were recorded and it's meant to be that way plus 18 chapters of ron's audio version of his best-selling lion novel brutus six stars of the sport four superstars of the past wendell cooley Mongolian Stomper, Dirty White Boy, documentaries are all there too, and so much more. All this for only $4.99 per month at $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial is still available. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, where are we riding next week, Ron? Well, we're going to head back to southeastern Knoxville, uh, with a fantastic turn, man, of uh, Crusher Blackwell. Uh, we're going to discover all the hidden intrigue, man, in this angle. 
And wow, it is really loaded with some good stuff. Uh, more controversy. Uh, we're going to talk about having weak cards there, uh, starting with this next card, March the 11th there in 1979. We'll talk about the TV for that one and the results of that those matches. And uh, we'll talk about the slipping attendance in that territory. Uh, southeastern Gulf Coast, we're going to look at uh, – we're going to get a look at me again down there, man. I'm going after David Schultz's belt, and uh, and we'll experience another loss of a star to Memphis. Uh, but the TV fans are going to get a look at wrestling future when old Terry, the Hulk Boulder, uh, makes his first Southeastern debut. He's going to make it on TV, <laughs> as a matter of fact, before he ever works any towns. And uh, hopefully we'll have time for another learning tree question similar to this one today, Dave. <laughs> So Sounds good. thanks to everybody out there, man, uh, that that continue to support us and uh, really, really appreciate it. Uh, tell your friends and your family members about us. Uh, take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.